0: Welcome to Yolitix, the home of cold beer and hot takes on Texas politics.
1: Hey there, Jason Whiteley back with you. Uh, We're back earlier than normal for this episode because we want to share a new conversation with you. A couple of days ago on Yalotix here, we spoke with a young woman in Kyiv. Her name is Madeline Kelly. She's 24, a photojournalist there. Uh, she's from Colorado originally, but joined us for the podcast. I met her a couple of years ago. She's in the Ukrainian capital waiting to see if the Russians will make it there. If you haven't heard this episode, you really should download it because Maddie really gives us a lay of the land, what life is like in Kyiv right now. The local Ubers are still running, she says. Coffee stands are reopening in Kiev. Grocery stores, pharmacies, both in business, even artists in the city there. They aren't sitting idly by. They're using their talents to defend the country. There's a real resilience that Maddie really explains in that episode. But we have another woman on the line with us right now that we want to share with you. Her name is Sarah Phillips. She is from Dallas. She's been on the podcast before. She works for an organization now called Medical Teams International. And she is with us right now from Moldova. If you don't know your geography, I had to look it up as well. Moldova is a lot closer to Kiev than Poland is. It's directly south of Kiev. It's close to uh, Turkey uh, as well. Poland has gotten two million refugees. It's all over the newscast. Moldova, a much, much smaller country, has gotten hundreds of thousands of refugees And Sarah is one of the volunteers who is seeing them as they come across. Sarah, thanks for being back on Yolotix with us. Tell us where you are right now.
0: Sure. I'm in Chisinau, which is the capital of Moldova, a tiny country that borders Ukraine on the southwestern side.
1: And I had to look this up on the map because I've heard of Moldova, but I I, I didn't know exactly where Moldova is. It's uh, essentially just north of Turkey. There uh, there in the Black Sea is what uh, my geography has shown me for our listeners who might not know where that is. Tell, tell us what you're doing there, Sarah.
0: Sure. So I was part of what we call our first in team with the organization I work with, Medical Teams International, to assess sort of needs related to the Ukrainian refugee crisis and conflict um, and identify if there were ways that our organization could um, sort of start a response. Um, we primarily do health and nutrition. Um, so I've been here on the ground, uh, 11 days, I think, um, trying to get our operations up and running.
1: Are you guys feeding these refugees when they come across and checking them out to make sure they're okay or what?
0: We are not, um, we're starting mobile medical teams, um, to provide health services to refugees based who are sort of in shelters. Um, a lot of refugees who are coming through Moldova are passing sort of. Through quite quickly, so sort of transiting um, and headed on to other countries in Europe, um, as well as other countries in, in the world. Um, yeah. But about a third of the refugees who are coming to Moldova are staying, which is higher percentage wise than in other border countries. Um, and so there are, you know, about a, a little over 100,000 refugees currently in Moldova who are staying and just sort of makeshift shelters at churches and gyms. and uh retreat centers just kind of anywhere there's a space to put a cot um so we're we're starting um mobile teams to provide medical care for them
1: why are they staying in moldova as opposed to moving on somewhere else Are, are they hoping to eventually go back to their home in ukraine
0: i mean that's a big part of it they want to stay close because you know people are holding on to hope of an ability to return home but actually there's a there's a lot more shared culture between Moldova and Ukrainians than Ukrainians with some other um, Eastern European countries, um, just in terms of history, culture, language, food, um, these kinds of things. So I think for some Ukrainians, it's a bit more familiar to stay here and it's more likely to find somebody who they can have a common language with.
1: Yeah, and, and for our listeners who might not realize this, I mean, Moldova is essentially like the neighboring state. It's like going from, from Dallas to Oklahoma or Houston to New Orleans. It's it's pretty pretty darn close. So It makes sense why so many people would be staying there. Mm-hmm. But a- have you had a chance to interact with anybody? Can you give us a, an idea of kind of how folks are doing there? Yeah,
0: I've spent some time at um, a couple of these refugee um, accommodation centers or shelters, and uh, one of the border crossings, so where people are first entering into Moldova after crossing from Ukraine. There's obviously several of them because there's you know, a lot of shared border area, but um, yeah, I mean, I think there's, people are sort of all over the place. Um, there are people who came out very early and had a clear plan, had contacts, have money, have resources, and they don't, I mean, they're happy for support, but they don't need a lot of external support. And then there are people who fled with minutes notice and have literally almost nothing with them. They don't have passports. They don't have IDs, no birth certificates for their kids. And they're just kind of in the state of shock of like, where do I go from here?
1: What are some stories that stick out to you, Sarah?
0: Uh, There was this one story I was told at the refugee center, um, of a family that had sat down for dinner, food on the table and their neighbors who had a car um, called and said we're leaving we're going to moldova we have room for you if you want to come with us but you have to decide in the next 3 minutes and i thought to myself 3 minutes i mean i travel all the time and i'm not entirely sure i could find my own passport in 3 minutes what do you what do you what do you grab with with that kind of of timeline. I think the other thing that's really heart-wrenching is the goodbyes at the border because um, men between the ages of 18 and 60 are not allowed to leave Ukraine um, because of the conscription to be fighting um, for Ukraine Um, and so you're seeing lots of families split up at the borders where the men are uh, able-bodied men are staying behind and um, moms with multiple small children trying to come across with carrying the kids and the luggage and bags and maybe escorting an elderly parent or grandparent. Um, it's just, it's hard, very hard.
1: And and your organization, Medical Teams International, there are, what, what do you anticipate that you guys will be able to provide? Is it basic medical care for these people? who, who Yeah, firstly,
0: basic medical care. Um, we are starting with the work inside Moldova while um, sort of, making sure that we're in a position to provide more support inside Ukraine if and when that becomes a reality. Um, We are aware of sort of, it's it's a very interesting sort of demographic mix of who's come out with it being like women, children, and the elderly. So you've got this kind of interesting mix of lots of childhood illnesses, both your normal ones. People have been cooped up in bunkers underground hiding from bombs. And so there's lots Mm. of colds and COVID, et cetera, being passed around. Um, Also there was a polio outbreak in Ukraine recently, and they just started a vaccination campaign um, to try to stop it that got halted by the war. So we're concerned about that. And then you have um, an elderly population who has a lot of what we would think of as pretty common diseases, high blood pressure, diabetes, et cetera. If you only have a few minutes to go, you probably don't have enough meds for your journey, whether you're going to stay in a border country for a while, or you're going to keep on traveling. And so we have a pretty significant concern that people as well are leaving with a sense of like panic and shock and that fight or flight, your body will keep you going. But once you get to a safe place, you you will crash. Um, There's been a couple of heart attacks and deaths at one of the border crossings, um, and they just weren't prepared with any kind of emergency supplies they needed to do. So that's another thing that we're, we're trying to sort of help get in place. There's a lot of really solid partners here who are assisting and the Ministry of Health is doing great work, WHO is here, um, but it's a scale issue of how, how much can a tiny country take? There's only like 2.6 million people in this whole country and they're already hosting 100,000 refugees. So if you just think about like percentage of population, it's enormous.
1: Yeah, and that's a good point, too, that you know, pe- people already have this anxiety of what's going on. They might be split up, and then they get to the border crossings, and it's heartbreaking to hear about the issues they're having there after finally making it to what they perceive as safety and then having a, a medical episode, like a heart attack or something like that. You guys have heard about those
0: mm-hmm. uh, stories? Yeah, definitely. And people the- just, I mean, just that sort of down. Some people come across. And you can see on their face a sense of relief, like, I made it. I made it to a safe place, that sense relief. And some people come across weeping. It's They've just left everything. Their home, their family, their friends, their jobs, their identity, all their stuff. Um, I mean, humans are humans. We react to things differently and feel things differently. But both, I've definitely seen sort of both ends of the spectrum
1: Sarah, th- this week marks one month now since the Russian invasion. And for the first few weeks, we really saw a lot of people going across, especially a, it seems a lot of the American journalists were at the, uh, the Polish borders. But uh, farther south where you are in Moldova there, a uh, hundred thousand people have come across, which is an enormous amount. considering
0: 365,000 have come across into Moldova. A hundred thousand are still here in the country. Wow.
1: 365,000. So uh, what? Two thirds of them have moved on somewhere else, but a hundred thousand still have hope they might mm-hmm. be able to get back soon.
0: Have hope or are just wanting to either haven't figured out their next step yeah. or just kind of in that holding pattern or um, they feel like it'll be easier for them to stay in Moldova than start over in some other country where they don't have connections or language skills.
1: 365,000 people coming across the border in in three and a half weeks is is unbelievable. Is is anyone still coming across at all?
0: Oh, yeah. Every day, thousands.
1: And and I presume there's similar stories where they're not sure if they're going to move on or if they're going to stay or, or kind of what's going right.
0: on? Right. At the very beginning, what you saw, like I said, was the people with resources. So a lot of those drove across. Yeah. I mean, obviously having to stop and get through the border. And some of those car lines were like 48 hours long, processing people exiting Ukraine and then entering into a new country. Um, so those initial people, very few of them stayed. They had resources, they had contacts, they probably, you know, they had money to go run a hotel or an apartment or they had friends or contacts in other countries. Um, But as time goes on, um, we expect more and more and more to be people with fewer resources. who sort of stuck it out as long as they could, um, but have fled um, for their lives and not without a plan, not having a place that they're planning on ending up. Um, or solid social
1: connections in other places. Uh, let's explore that for a moment, because I, I read that the other day, and that kind of struck me that, you know, experts uh, like you say that the first wave coming through had had money, could get a hotel, new friends in other countries and places like that. Mm-hmm. But, but this next wave uh, are folks with fewer resources who will only leave if they're forced to leave, uh, if, if shelling gets so bad. What do you expect this next wave of refugees to actually require? And when do you think you'll start seeing them?
0: So there's never been a time when there's been like a drop off in, in crossing. Um, it's been steady. There's been spikes that you can clearly associate with like new attacks in new areas. You start seeing population shift, but currently, so today probably we'll, we'll hit 3.5 million refugees who've left Ukraine since the beginning of the invasion um this sometimes when people count refugees they're counting from like 2014 then the crimea war but this is just the last not quite four weeks um so it'll be 3.5 million i'm sure by the end of today there are more than 6 million displaced people inside ukraine at all the borders so they have fled their homes their cities they haven't made that final step of leaving Ukraine, kind of that holding out hope thing. But 6 million more people we know, and that's probably an undercount, honestly, are kind of grouped all along the the Western borders. Um, So it is one thing for Europe to absorb, I mean, the, the biggest population movement since World War II. But if you triple that, there's just not
1: capacity to absorb 9 million people. Let's explore those numbers and just put context on those. 3.5 sure. million refugees, and I heard this morning there, were, there are 10 million now displaced. These numbers are, are changing by the minute here. But yeah. just for context, this is a country, Ukraine is a country of 44 million people, which tells me, you know, basic math, there, there are a lot of folks who are simply staying put or being shoved to different parts of the country. Are you spe-
0: or who can't leave. I mean, there are cities that are surrounded and people cannot evacuate. Um, and that's happening a lot in the southeast. You've probably heard of Mariupol, right. um, where there's been repeated attempts for a humanitarian evacuation to allow people safe exit um, that have just failed every time. So that's a situation where you have hundreds of thousands of people in a city who are trapped, they can't get out. And we really don't have good information on how many civilians are being killed. Um, I do think at some point, we will begin to see more wounded crossing, um, especially if, if the fighting, you know, picks back up with sort of pace and intensity. Um, it seems to have plateaued a bit, it's not stopped at all. But um, I think that that will be something that these, you know, it'll be kind of the, in between injuries the really terrible injuries won't be able to make it to a border to cross um but it'll be sort of those in between maybe somebody with a shot in the leg who somebody helped them across this kind of thing i think we'll start seeing more what we call walking wounded Um, and then people who've been displaced for a while out of their regular drugs for a while now they've really deteriorated whatever chronic condition they had it's different when you fled you made it to the border in five days you got out within a week okay but if you've been displaced for three weeks waiting to make a decision not being able to access health services um then you're in you're in a lot worse shape um
1: it, are are, are you out, guys pre- are you guys prepared for the walking wounded and the number of people that might be coming out of this war zone, which which is, you know, the worst in 80 years?
0: Yeah. Um, I don't know that anyone is prepared. <laughs> it's it's just a huge scale problem. There are, like I said, a lot of humanitarian actors on the ground from UN agencies to, you know, nonprofits like us. Um and then again, a lot of these surrounding countries had you know, good healthcare system yeah. prior to the conflict. And so they do have capacity, um, but I do think it will be a, ultimately a scale issue. So, yes, contingency planning is ongoing now, um, trying to ensure sort of there's backup plans, which partner can, say, set up a field hospital if the local hospital is overwhelmed, you know, in this area. Um, and, you know, where are, you know, there's, sort of warehousing going on, trying to decide which areas are most likely to need more trauma supplies and wound care supplies versus more sort of your your typical primary care supplies. Um, so that kind of work is going on, but it's just it's just massive.
1: Yeah. And, and this is, like you said, kind of a, probably a shock to the system for Moldova, which is a country of 2.6 million there. How are these?
0: And the poorest country in Europe as well.
1: Moldova is the poorest country in Europe. hmm so, so yeah. how are these people being received in Moldova?
0: Oh, I, I, I could just talk just about this. I have been so humbled by the response of Moldovans. It is astounding that out of their little, they have been so incredibly generous. Um, I got, before I even landed in Moldova, I started my, our assessments in Poland and then went to Romania and then came here. I got put in this, uh, sort of grassroots WhatsApp group with churches and missionaries and just local people. And they 24-7 are like, hey, I have a mom and two kids who are about to cross at such and such border. Can someone pick them up? Who can host them? Um, They need these supplies. Oh, I need to have so-and-so. They have a disabled aunt who's coming out. She's going to need this kind of a setting. It's absolutely amazing the amount of generosity and compassion people have had i was at at one it's kind of like a i guess a church based retreat center almost but it hadn't been finished if the building was built but nothing was equipped within 72 hours they had that place completely outfitted we're hosting over 300 people they had tables they went from like a shell of a kitchen to like something that i walked in i was like this looks like an industrial kitchen um just absolutely amazing. Volunteers at all hours of the day, people bringing diapers and food and clothes and, you know, volunteer nurses trying to come in and help. Um, so it's, they're, are doing a fantastic job. And I don't at all want entities like us coming in to detract from that. We just know that the the scope, the scale and the duration of this um crisis is likely to sort of exhaust the local resources um at some point but really the response has been beautiful and humbling
1: sarah what happens when that gets exhausted do you you think the the goodwill there might evaporate in moldova and places like poland and other countries
0: i don't know if it will evaporate i just think that i mean at At the moment, you know, you have people who are literally volunteering at a a shelter every single day after their work day. Um,
1: These are Moldovan citizens who go to work all day mm -hmm. and then go to a shelter and and help out?
0: Yeah, exactly. Every day. Every day. Um, And we just we know that's not sustainable. Um, So I don't I don't get any sense that there will be a loss of compassion. But there may be a loss of energy to keep giving giving at the same rate and pace, um, especially as the economy becomes taxed by supporting an extra, you know, one or 200,000 people. Um, and I do think that is when there is opportunity for organizations like ours, because we, we've been collecting donations for this crisis and we're trying to put some of that those funds back into some of these local entities and organizations who are doing the sort of very frontline, grassroots salt-of-the-earth kind of work um, and and we hope to continue doing that because they, yeah, they're really the ones doing I think the hardest, hardest bit of it.
1: When I asked you about the, the goodwill evaporating as well too I mean, it sounds like that when the economy gets taxed, we, we just see what happens all, all over the planet from the United States to, you know, uh, other continents as well. But people sometimes turn on those who are most vulnerable. Yeah. Are, are you worried at all that that might happen in, in the
0: coming weeks, months or, or years? You know, I think if I hadn't been here, I might be. I'm less so having been here. I think there is a real sense of solidarity, especially among Moldovans. As yeah. That can be us.
1: There, there's also uh, talk that, that I've read too, if if Putin is, is able to get away with Ukraine, that he might move on to other countries, and the first country that people have talked about beyond Ukraine is Moldova. Is, are people talking about that there?
0: Yes, they are definitely talking about it. You know, I met one young woman who you know is a young professional, and she asked me, "Do you think I should be worried? Do you think I should prepare?" Yeah, you should probably be worried. You should probably at least think through, what do you want to do? Will you flee? Will you stay? Do you have your documents together? What about your family? Um, Those are really difficult things to think through, but I think they have to be thought through. Moldova has such a fascinating history. Um, I met a guy who said his grandfather has never moved. He's always lived in the same house here in Moldova, and his citizenship has changed five times in his lifetime. And I, I cannot honestly grasp that. Um, I realize how privileged I really am when I just, you know, I, I'm speechless at something like that. So I think there's some parts of the population that treated a little bit like an inevitability. And then there are many others, I think, especially young people who are used to freedoms and the Internet and globalization and being a part of that sort of bigger global community. Um, that it would be way more difficult for, so, yes, I think it is a something we have to continually consider, and um, that it may well happen.
1: Are there any preparations anywhere on the streets or anything like that, or are people just kind of chattering about uh, you know, hey, I should have a go bag ready to go?
0: I think it's more about the go bag. I mean, to be perfectly honest, um, Moldova would probably not fight. um I don't know i'm not I'm not the government we're uh, as a humanitarian organization, we maintain impartiality. Um, but that's what the stories I've heard from various people is that they have a very small army, and in their constitution, they are stated to be neutral. So hmm. it it probably wouldn't be a significant battle.
1: Sarah, you've been all over the world uh, doing humanitarian, uh, you know, causes, uh, responding to humanitarian causes. Have you ever responded to something like this?
0: I mean, I've been in conflict settings um, and, you know, seeing desperate people fleeing their homes and and livelihoods. Um, I I do think that there's a, a, like, I keep using the word scale because this, this is just so huge and so fast um, that that's the piece of it that is sort of mind boggling but it's also interesting as a humanitarian aid organization um because we are in Europe and Europe you know Moldova is not the same as say Sierra Leone in West Africa there's a different sort of base of resources and capacities um so it's been interesting for us to kind of figure out where do we fit and how do we best support if if we're not needed in the same way we might be in a lower resource country. Um, what can we do that's still beneficial um, to, to the response? Um, and certainly while I have seen absolutely compassion and generosity in other places of the world, I am daily astounded by it here. I just keep thinking in Texas, how many of us have opened our homes to our own border crisis? Um, and I say that to myself as well. Um, it's pretty convicting to, to, to look at what people are doing, who have a lot less than I do, honestly. Um, and they really are treating re- these refugees as, as their brothers, their sisters, their family.
1: You mentioned early on in the conversation about that, that family who got a call from their neighbors and said, hey, we're leaving in three minutes if you want to come, you know, hop in the car with us. I Like you, I I can't imagine getting a call like that and having to make that decision and and think of what you're going to take with you in addition to your loved ones. Have you had a a moment where any of this has gotten emotional for you?
0: Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, when I was um, at one of the border crossings and this woman came across It's like a long walk over a bridge that is the dividing geographical boundary between the two countries there. And she was just weeping sobs as she entered Moldova. She was younger than me for sure, probably mid 20s, alone, traveling alone. I don't know. I didn't know her story. I don't speak her language, and I didn't want to. Obviously, bother her in her moment of intense distress, other than pointing to her to like where the resources were. Um, but yeah, there's definitely been moments where it just gets you. Well,
1: what struck you about that young woman?
0: I think just the like sense of loss, just profound loss. Like, yeah, maybe she's secured a degree of freedom and safety. Um, but it came at significant cost.
1: Does this make it any, any more challenging or difficult for you to do your work?
0: Yeah, I think this is always one of the hardest things about this work is we never want to do it out of sort of being robots. Like we want to, the reason I'm driven to do this work is to care, you know, the human component. Um, of wanting to ensure that all people are treated with the dignity and the value that they deserve. But to do that, you have to think of them as humans and as individuals. It's easy, yeah, to look at the numbers and be like 3.5 million, 6 million, 12 million. But then when you see one woman weeping, um, it gets really personal. And it's this constant balance of some of it you've gotta shove down to be able to keep on doing the work and doing responding, but um, I have a very good therapist in Dallas who I'm very grateful for. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think a lot of it is, you know, processing time, even with team members, you know, it was a very, very, very quiet ride back from the border that day. In our vehicle, as we're of all processing, things we'd seen and experienced and concerns we had around things like human trafficking um, and the obvious uh, nefarious motives of some people at the border and just it's all very weighty, really.
1: I, I can imagine um, do you ever have to call your friends in in Dallas or your therapist in Dallas to to vent or at least to to get some things off your chest?
0: I do, I do. I'm really grateful to have a fantastic community, which is how I met Taylor. Uh, his wife was in in one of my community groups for years. Um, yeah, I'm really lucky to mm. have people who even if they don't do this work or get this work, continue to care for me and support me and send me funny memes when that's what I need to get through the day.
1: And and just for our listeners, Taylor uh, Lumsden is uh, one of our producers on the podcast here who uh, graciously reached out to Sarah again for us uh, on this podcast. A couple last questions, uh, Sarah, and we can let you go. I'm curious, what do you think, you know, Texans are watching this from thousands of miles away, uh, you know, watching on television, seeing it, scrolling through our, our social media feeds. What do you think that Texans don't get about this crisis?
0: You know, I have heard some Texans say, Oh, this is different. They look just like me. And honestly, that really bothers me a lot because this color of someone's skin shouldn't dictate how we treat them. But the reality is it, it kind of has in our history. Um, we have a lot of refugees in Dallas in Texas. Dallas is one of the major re- refugee resettlement cities in the U.S. There's an enormous opportunity to extend the same generosity that Moldovans are doing to refugees in Dallas right now. Um, yeah, maybe you don't have to let them sleep in your guest room, although perhaps we should all consider it, but you can invest in the lives of people who look different and have a different background than you, um, and that, I don't know, I just feel like we all have this part to play. And if we don't carry our little load of the burden of the world, then someone else is carrying a double load. Um, and I think honestly, Ukrainian refugees will end up in Dallas. Um, the US, I'm really grateful, is, is loosening some restrictions on refugees being able to enter the, the US. Um, and because of Dallas's uh, site as, as a major refugee resettlement site, Ultimately, what that means is some of those very refugees will end up in in Dallas. But I guess I would say, don't wait for that. There are already people in your neighborhood, whether that's your physical neighborhood or your city um, or state, um, who you can get to know and walk alongside.
1: How long do you plan to be there in Moldova, Sarah?
0: don't think any of us ever know um i think i personally am here for at least the next two three weeks and then we'll probably go back uh, to the us for a few weeks my brother's getting married so hoping to be there for that um and then um we'll see we're as an organization we're planning on being here on the ground at least the next six months um and then we'll kind of reassess what the needs are and if if there's a need for us to continue Um, providing, you know, medical response services, um, or if we need to redirect our work elsewhere.
1: Sarah, thank you for what you do and thank you for the time uh, speaking with us today.
0: Thanks, Jason. It was a pleasure to be on Yaletics again.